Hi everyone, welcome to Third Spacing, the podcast, where we talk about important issues on the fringes of clinical medicine. I'm your host, An Hui. Today we are joined with Caitlin and Yingying, who are both current M3s, to talk about our gap year experience between our second and third year of medicine, in which we all took a year to study the liberal arts at Yale University in Connecticut, USA. Caitlin and Yingying went in 2019 to 2020, and I went from 2018 to 2019. We were all under this program called the Yale Visiting International Students Program, also known as YVIS, which is supported by the NUS International Relations Office. Just to give all of you some background information, YVIS was started in 2011. A small number of NUS students would be able to spend a year at Yale. Medicine was only added to the list of approved faculties in 2018. And in this program, NUS sponsors the students for the year abroad. And students from other faculties have to pay their NUS school fees for the year at Yale. For, mo- for students from most other faculties, they would typically take classes in their own major. So a lit major might take classes in literature. However, for three of us, um, since we're all medical students, we don't really have any major requirements aside from the five years of MBBS. And so we could essentially take whatever classes that we wanted to. So now that we had all the boring bureaucratic bits settled, we're very happy to share with you our experiences over there and how it literally changed our lives for the better. We talk about the things that we did over there, why we decided to take a gap year, which is very unusual, and what are the kinds of things that we took part in as M1s and M2s. At the end of the podcast, we also offer some advice for students who are considering taking a gap year and why you really should not hesitate to. Hey guys, thank you so much for joining me today. I thought it might be a good idea to start off this podcast with just a brief overview of what are the kinds of activities you took part in, both socially as well as academically. So maybe Caitlin, could you start first? Over the six, seven months that I was in the US, uh, what I did academically was I took classes in public health, in medical anthropology, in writing, social entrepreneurship and documentary filmmaking as well as in the history of medicine. So altogether, I took eight classes over two semesters. And I think the notable thing about the classes that I took was that they all had this sort of element where we could choose certain areas to focus on. So what I did was I kind of slanted my um, projects towards uh, obstetrics and gynecology, which is an area that I'm interested in. So for instance, in my one of my public health classes was on queer population health, was focusing on the accessibility of obstetrical and gynecological services among transgender men who are basically people who are born female uh, but do not identify as female and they transition whether medically or socially to become males instead. It's an issue for them to access um, obstetrical and gynecological care because a lot of times we brand OBGYN stuff as women's health even though these people are not women but they still need the same care. So there are sort of barriers to them accessing care and I've been sort of looking into that for the class and also in my free time. Socially, I guess what I did at Yale was um, mostly theatre-centred. I did about four productions, some for charity as well. We raised funds for the Connecticut Alliance to End Sexual Violence in one of the plays that I did. Outside of theatre, I was on the climbing team. I placed 34th in my very first competition, which is not too bad, (laughs) um, in my opinion, because it was my first competition. I also made friends in New Haven, one, one of whom I call my New Haven grandmother. She's 71. She's a disability rights advocate. And I wrote a profile essay about her for one of my writing classes. And we've become 
like really good friends. I confide in her a lot and she confides in me too. And we've been Skyping ever since I came home regularly. I also befriended this lady who panhandles and sells flowers on the street. I was supposed to do a documentary about her for my class, but because of the coronavirus, I came back home early and I couldn't finish the documentary. But uh, I hope to find a way to get in touch with her again because she doesn't really use most of the internet-based platforms, so it's a bit hard to reach her. But if I can find a way to, I definitely will. Spring break, I was, I was supposed to go to Atlanta for a public health case competition. That was, yeah, that was pretty cool. We were supposed to represent Yale and go for an international case competition in Emory University. And that was... So exciting, but in the end, it got converted to a remote competition and we had to do it via Zoom. <laughs> but I was part of our solution. Like, we, we were supposed to come up with a solution for measles in Ukraine. The hypothetical outbreak in 2030, we were supposed to come up with a solution for that. In the course of writing our solution, we interviewed, like, three people from Ukraine. So I was very proud of, like, getting primary data to support our interventions, but apparently that was not enough to win the competition. <laughs> so I think when I first... When you academically, I was expecting like liberal, a liberal arts cur- curriculum. And I think at that point in time, I didn't actually know what a liberal arts curriculum is. So I went in thinking that I would do a lot of humanities and social sciences. So what I did, the two semesters out there, that I did like a little history of medicine, basically how sort of different historical events affected, say like the American healthcare system. Doing medicine, you never really think about like what actually caused like things to be the way it is. Um, besides like that, um, there's medicine related. I also did other stuff like writing. One interesting class I took was Intro to Engineering Innovations in Design, which like engineering sounds like something that is like super unreachable, which was something that I taught before that like I can never code, I can never like build things because like, oh, I, I have not been taught any of this. But like going to this class, it was really fun because like the instructors had like a project every week to like teach you different concepts. So like when we were learning about chemical engineering, they made us make chocolate. We are learning about coding, they made us like code a game to play with our friends. Um, and it just made like learning really fun and interactive. And I like never expected myself to have so much fun doing an engineering course and it was great. And other than that, I just like took really like, different courses like I took this class called Ethnic Race and Migration. I taught Life of Living. Just moving quickly to like socially, like what I did. Um, so I try, I try to do like new things in my time at Yale. So one thing I got into was dance. So I joined Dance Works, which is like this like, it was my first time dancing, but like everyone was super welcoming and I had a lot of fun and I picked up a new skill. Two, I was involved in like more history of medicine, interest group and got to meet like people from medical school who was also interested in history of medicine. And I guess third, I was involved in like a couple of events such as like hackathons or case competitions where I got to like make friends from like New York and Boston. We still keep in touch and we're going to visit each other at some point in time when we are both, we are all in the same continent again. And they've just like opened up my world of like what you could do with like a medical degree as well as like the different things that you can explore. Yeah, I think a lot of what Yingying said really resonated with me also um, in the sense of spending a year abroad in Yale, where the liberal arts has such a long tradition, made me realize that medicine could be so much more than it is in Singapore. Like, I had a few main goals when I went to Yale. Number one, I really wanted to do um, sociology and anthropology classes. I really wanted to write a lot. I wanted to take a lot of writing intensive classes. And um, I wanted to do, I wanted to explore my research in plastic surgery. A particular kind of uh, surgery called facial feminization surgery, which helps trans women appear more feminine through soft and hard tissue uh, procedures. For instance, removing the Adam's apple. 
yeah, so I wanted to explore what the perception of femininity is and what attractiveness means and how surgeons should tailor their approach to each patient. Um, I actually didn't end up taking any anthropology or sociology classes at Yale, but I did find out about this program called the Ethnicity, Race and Migration Program, which, and I'm oversimplifying this, is basically the study of racism in America specifically. And the way that I found out about this whole class first, I was at a Yale bookstore one day trying to find like some philosophy text. And then I saw this book called Decolonizing Methodologies, which is about how research is so deeply embedded with colonialism. And then from there, I took this class called Comparative Ethnic Studies in my first sem. And in my second sem, I took this class called Comparative Colonialisms with a super famous prof called Lisa Lowe. Go check her work out. And both of these classes were seminars, which means that there were, I think, 18 people in each class. The amount of things that you learn in the class is heavily dependent on how much you read. Comparative ethnic studies and comparative colonialism were both interdisciplinary classes in the sense that we didn't just read academic texts, we also read literature and we also read like everyday texts like, like newspapers for like contextual knowledge. I think one of my biggest takeaways from Yale was really the ethnicity, race and migration program. Not only because a lot of my close friends that I still keep in contact with are from ethnicity, race and migration, but I think it helped me. I know I shouldn't be saying this in the sense that it shouldn't take a Chinese person to go to Yale for one year to realize that racism is a problem in Singapore. I think the truth is I, I always kind of knew that there was something fish in Singapore, but I never knew the words to express it. And ERM gave me the words to think about it clearly. And not just that, also think of a solution and a way out of it. Aside from ERM, I also took class, two classes in creative writing. In my first semester, like Odin and Kaden, I took English 120. It was like my first ever formal, formal creative writing class. So I was very rough and she really gently guided me along the way. And then... My, in my second semester, I took this like, super famous year class called uh, Daily Themes, where you write 300 words every day. It is pure torture, but it helps you get over procrastination. And I think that was the main point of the class, to say that writing is not about talent, it's not about how interesting your life experiences is, it's about whether you can get down and do the dirty work. I also took two classes in architecture, but they were not traditional architectural classes. I think I wanted to take more like a theory class. In first sem, I took the Intro to Urban Studies, which talks about how, like, why cities are the way they are. And in my second sem, I took this class called Many, uh, which, was a, which was a graduate architecture class. And so all my classmates were uh, graduate architecture students um, in which we tried to imagine a way in which migration is not always talked about the way it is, which is always like a poor person going to a rich country to extract wealth. We want to talk about it and talk about it without a hierarchy in the sense that the rich country benefits a lot from people coming into their country as well. And then um, I took this another famous yoga class uh, called Moral Skepticism by Shelley Kagan. Shelley Kagan's not a very conventional philosophy professor in the sense that he really hates it when you just use big words that don't mean anything. He wants you to be very precise with your language. I felt like that class helped me be more precise in my language and my thought as well. And then in my second sem, I took this class called Ornithology, which is the study of birds. Uh, it's by this super famous prof called Richard Prume. He really shaped the way that I thought about science. Ornithology is it's actually related to feminism. 10% of male ducks get 90% of female ducks. So a lot of male ducks don't get the chance to reproduce. And they rape female ducks. He said that when societies have become more competitive, the male duck penises become longer and rougher. And so he's trying to say that this is why we need a more compassionate kind of society because women bear the brunt of this violence. The Yale Daily News, where I wrote for the science and medicine team, and I really wanted to focus on uh, public health and medical research with like a social justice goal to it. And I also volunteered at the refugee clinic. 
and I made a lot of my friends like just hanging out in the residential colleges. I think we didn't, we didn't talk about this at all, but um, Yale is split up with 14 residential colleges. Um, I was part of Moss College. It is a twin college with uh, Ezra Styles, uh, which we just call Styles, and we have a shared dining hall. So I, I made a lot of friends from my residential college just by like hanging on the battery or like going to the dining halls and like just like introducing yourself to like people who live there like you see see a lot um, and I also went for a lot of student performances I watched Just at Water like I went for like all of the performances and um, there's this student group called Juke Songs which is a Asian American uh, spoken word poetry group okay so now that you're back in Singapore what kind of projects uh, what kind of things are you looking forward to do personally I really wanted to get more involved with even just like starting a conversation about race in medicine, I think that the way that we talk about race in medicine in Singapore is very biological and very genetic. It's very like, it's like it's already determined by our genes. Race is a social construct, which is determined by context, by history, by powers of oppression and colonialism to form a hierarchy within, to explain differences between men. And so um, right now I'm currently working on a Europe uh, with Dr. Suryani from Malay Studies to do an autoethnography about a medical student's experiences with race in Singapore. And uh, this pandemic has given me some time to, to do it, which is really nice. And of course, I'm doing this podcast because I think that it's important to create space to talk about things which are very, very important, but still on the peripheries of uh, what medicine is, to kind of like broaden um, what medicine, what we think medicine could be. For me, what I have been working on since coming back home is an article. I mean, I'm doing the interviews before an article, but they're along the same, they're in the same project. Um, so like what I mentioned about uh, transgender men and access to obstetrical and gynecological care, while I focused on that for my project in queer population health, what I've been doing since coming home is interviewing uh, trans men as well as non-binary uh, folks who uh, have given me their contact number. So what I did a while ago was send out a survey on Facebook and on some of the queer broadcasting channels in Singapore to get responses from this population of trans men, trans masculine and non-binary people about their experiences seeking care in Singapore. And in the past month or so, I've interviewed about six people about their experiences and oh, I'm planning to put this all together to form sort of a profile come investigative piece about what the challenges to accessing care are, how they are unique in Singapore and how we can craft sort of culturally appropriate solutions to this problem because like what Anhui was saying a lot of the classes at Yale were quite American focused especially I experienced that especially with my public health classes where when we talk about healthcare interventions it was very focused on an American public health system and not not on the insurance side of things but on like the culture within the healthcare system and within the country so when talking about how to improve healthcare access for queer populations it would be about you know standardizing intake forms to have sexual orientation and gender identity on them. But this sort of thing isn't really going to work in Singapore at this stage. People will just get offended by the fact that you're asking them what their sexual orientation is, or even the queer folks themselves wouldn't want to necessarily disclose their sexual orientation or gender identity because it might not be safe to at this point in time, or just because of privacy reasons to begin with. So like there are these different cultural nuances, I feel, within the Singapore context, which I want to look at um, in my time now that I'm back. So I think being in the US sort of gave me the frame at which to look at these issues and now it's about trying to apply that frame to a local context. So I, I'm going to have it published in the Yale Global Health Review, which is an undergraduate global health journal. 
So it fits in there because I'm giving a Singaporean perspective. So that's technically global health from an American point of view, even though it's not global health for me. So another issue that I picked up on while I was in the US was sexual intimacy for cancer survivors. So Yale actually has a clinic called the Sexual Intimacy and Menopause Clinic. And they basically help cancer survivors regain a fulfilling sex life. Uh, the reason why their sex life suffers is because sometimes cancer treatment can result in like side effects like a narrower vaginal canal, a shorter vaginal canal, vaginal dryness, or vaginal scarring. So a lot of side effects from cancer treatment actually affect someone's sexual functioning. And I've been writing an article for that for my writing about medicine class. And it's set in the US, but I'm definitely, at the back of my mind, I want to explore what this issue is like in Singapore. Whether, you know, sexual intimacy is something that Singaporean patients want to have addressed and how we can go about addressing it in a way that is comfortable for them. Similarly, it might not be, you know, about implementing some kind of widespread program or like talking about sex on the streets and stuff like that. It might be a more conservative approach or a more, a gentler, softer approach. And I, what I have been coming to see is that, you know, there's nothing wrong about approaching stuff differently. And I think that's something that I definitely want to bear in mind in the future. Like there's no approach that is superior to another. It's about what works given the context that you're in. Can I just bounce off what Caitlin was going to say? So I, I kind of forgot I, I did writing also after I came back. So I, I really wanted to write a piece about, about this European traveler's account came to Southeast Asia in like the 1500s. And it was about Papua and Albino, who was completely white and he said just like them. But at the same time, I wanted to talk about how race is not, like, the way that we think about race cannot be simplified into just skin color. It is about the structure which upholds this hierarchy as well. I also wrote a piece about how when we try to determine race through craniofacial measurements, end up uh, reproducing this kind of the logics of biological race um, in the sense that we can determine race through like the width of someone's nose or how tall they are. Uh, as a paid research assistant for a sociology professor at NTU, um, and currently we're working on an interdisciplinary project with uh, some her colleagues in psychology, to look at whether um, etiology of disease, be it environmental or biological, um, is linked to biological or social constructions of race. Just before I go into like what I've been doing, I just want to say, I really like your first article. Like, I was reading this reading for my class at Yale, and basically it was a sort of research study about how blind people perceive race. And like, even though they're blind, and they don't see people or like, skin colour or anything, they still have like their pre -con like they still mirror the normal like racism that people people with sight do and like that really just goes to show like it's not really about like biology or like sight or like what someone looks like. It's more of like whatever power structure they are. Anyway, moving on quickly about what I've been up to. So there's a few things that I'm excited about and I'm just currently exploring what I can do. So like I think the first thing I'm thinking about is to do this history of medicine interest group discussion group. So like back at Yale, I was involved in this group where every week we would gather for like nice dinner sponsored by the Yale school and um, talk about history of medicine. So before, before a session, we have a few readings. During a session, we just like go through some discussion questions. So the people who come from this group are a mix of people. They're medical students. There's history of medicine graduates. There's professors who are interested in history of medicine. And it was just a very rewarding experience for me because you just get to explore like different topics. Um, so we talked about the study of anatomy in 
different topics. And I think one thing I wanted to explore more was how is this relevant to Singapore as well. So I'm actually teaming up with a friend from the history department in NUS and we are going to pilot this potential topics you are thinking of talking about at least for the first few weeks. Psychiatry in Singapore, eugenics in Singapore, race, race in medicine, alternative medicine. So these are the stuff we are brainstorming. Um, the second thing is, so at Yale, I did a few like healthcare innovations or like hackathon related things. And like, I just think that there's a lot of potential for that. Because I think in medicine, sometimes there's a tendency to go with what's safe and go with like the route that is well-trodden. And innovation is an area that like many people hesitate to explore. At least like going to you has showed me that taking risks, at least those that you're comfortable with taking and are able to take um, can sometimes read like surprising benefits and can just open up your world. So like going to Yale was a risk for me, but I think that actually made me a better person and I'm glad I did it. So I guess like this just pushed me to like explore area, maybe potentially a future. If anyone wants to be a co-founder slash talk about ideas, please hit me up. So I guess the third thing is just a shameless publicity plug of what I've been doing for the past few weeks. So when I came back to Singapore, I was basically thrown to um, SHN in a hotel. So I, I couldn't go home. I was just stuck in this hotel room by myself for 14 days. And it got kind of boring uh, after the first few days. And so I just had this idea that also inspired by my time at Yale. So I did this um, class called Life of Living and we actually talk about effective altruism and like how you can make an impact with your life and one of the most effective ways to actually make an impact is actually to donate portions of your income to like, organizations who are actually specialized and are able to like, maximize the like income that you gain into like changing people's life and I think one of the very inspirational talks that I had was that this lady, she came and talked to us about how she and her husband consistently donated 50% of their entire income to charity every year. And like, this is with two kids, a house, and like, so many things to think about and they still managed to do it like, since a few years after they started working, which I think is amazing. I don't think I'll ever be able to do that. So I... Start, start small. So we are all getting the solidarity budget from the government, $600. And I think in that time I was in SHN, I just thought it'd be an interesting idea if for people who might not need their money at that point in time to donate it or like pledge it to a certain charity. And I've just started this Instagram group, which all of you should follow. It's called at Solidarity Pledge. And so I was thinking, maybe let's switch tech on how this might have changed your long-term views or your long-term like career goals in the sense that, okay, I can go first um, in the sense that I feel like right now I'm a lot more um, willing to do things which other people wouldn't consider, which is not a usual thing for a medical doctor to do, which is to do like an advanced degree or a graduate degree. I'm not exactly sure what degree it is, to be completely honest, uh, but I'm thinking it would either be medical anthropology, medical sociology, or philosophy. I know I'm not like, great at philosophy. I'm not looking to be an awesome philosophy professor. I just think that the tools of thinking and, and the, the clarity and sharpness of thinking is something which I feel like I could do with in terms of making the world a better place. And I, and I feel like this is especially true in the setting which we're operating in in Singapore in the sense that running at a wall is not going to break it down. You have to be a bit more tactical and strategic if you wanted to make Singapore more inclusive. I think when I first came to medicine, I had a really like run-track mindset. So it was like, get to medical school, go for residency, and then like graduate, become a consultant. And then like the whole like 
whole path that like, everyone talks about. But I didn't realize that medicine, there's a lot of different paths that you can take. So like, for example, when I was at Yale, I was talking to like my history of medicine professor who's a pediatrician. She, she's a professor at both the medical school and history of medicine school. And like, she does work in both and tries to apply what she learns in Dispar- healthcare disparity from history of medicine into what she does in her clinical practice. I've met a few doctors who have started their own companies in terms of like working in like mental health or like healthcare, providing telehealth and all these are super interesting things that like I never knew that you can do with a medical degree. And I guess personally for me, like all this sounds like really interesting and it just like pushed me to like sort of explore a bit more when I'm back and sort of be open to more options. And at this point in time, I feel like it's still a bit early for me since I haven't actually started clinical. So I'm not actually sure which path I want to take, but I think that... Yeah, I think moving forward or like looking long-term, I don't have a definitive answer to this yet because I haven't given the long-term future too much thought. I've just been going at things day by day, week by week. But I think what I definitely want to do is do something in addition to clinical practice. I think being overseas and exposing myself to different disciplines like documentary filmmaking, social entrepreneurship, public health, medical anthropology, like there are so many. And each time after the course concludes, I would ask the professor like, oh, you know, are there any physicians who are in this field? So like, are there physician entrepreneurs? Are there physician documentary filmmakers, etc.? And the answer is always yes. And I think, I don't know which of these or if it could be something else that I want to go into, but there's definitely a lot more than you can do than just clinical practice while still retaining your clinical practice. And I think they're mutually enforcing. Medical anthropologists who are also physicians, they gain access to people that they can do ethnographic studies with via their clinical practice. And at the same time, they also have something to offer these people who they study through their clinical practice. These these goals are not like going in two separate directions, I feel. So that's really something that I enjoy. Even like thinking about like physician filmmakers, you know, you you know your patients very closely and you view them through a different lens and you can bring that lens into the films that you make as well. So I don't know what, (laughs) my way of like, I'm talking about all these different things because I don't know what exactly I want to go into, but they're definitely all options that I'm considering and very excited by. The humanities and social sciences have so much to offer us um, and it is worth investing our time and education in. So one thing which um, I guess like if I really wanted to like encapsulate the year at year is um, the shortest path is not necessarily the best path. Um, and the shortest path, which is something which we always think, um, which is the most efficient path in Singapore, might not necessarily lead to the best results. I think... Um, an issue which I realized in Singapore is like, I mean, even I realized even in clinical medicine is that there's that temptation to just use your CDS notes and just like study and so that when next time the consultant like quizzes you on something, you have something to say. But then you will never ever be the best at what you do if you take the shortcut out. Maybe let's like get sentimental a bit and like talk about why you wanted to take this year abroad. I knew I wanted to do medicine. Like, I was very, very sure about it. But I was also very, very sure I wanted to do something else. Like. Before, before I wanted to be a doctor, I wanted to be like a journalist. When I was thinking about taking a gap year, I wasn't like thinking specifically of Yale University. I was literally like thinking about any, any school that would let me take a year abroad. And uh, it's just so, I just went for the, um, 
GRO Marketing Fair at Newtown. And then I was like, oh, oh my God, this is called Year of Physics International Program. And it is one year long. So I was like, this is perfect. Because like for medical students, you cannot take half a semester. You cannot take one semester off. If you want to take, you take the whole year off. And I did a lot of like back and forth over email. And I have to say, Prof. really did help me a lot with the paperwork. And, and, and yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of work on her behalf. Lah. And uh, I also have to give a shout out to Ms. Chong Siu Ling from DO um, for dealing with all those paperwork. Similar to Henry, I didn't want to specifically go to Yale or anything. It was kind of just, I, I wanted, my motivation for taking a gap year was to learn more outside of medicine. I had already been doing that because I was in Cinnamon College. So I was taking classes at USP, which is the University Scholars Program. So I was in USP as a partial student. So instead of taking 12 classes over four years, I took three classes in two years. So it was a very, very significantly reduced workload for me. But that meant that I took about one class every semester including a mini research module on perceptions of depression in Singapore, which I, which I did with a friend um, independently. It, it was very rewarding to sort of explore these areas that were not clinical medicine, but were still related to people's well-being and health. Um, like I took a class on emotions and how that affects like so much in the world, like so many structures or like how we go about doing things. I also took a general writing class, which like just improved my clarity la, uh, in when my two years concluded, I was like, it's over. <laughs> and I wasn't ready for it to be over. I wasn't ready to just plunge into the wards and only do that. So I, I wanted to take a gap year because I wasn't ready for it, for this academic pursuit outside of medicine to end. And I thought that it would end after my gap year, which is like around now. But fortunately, what I took away from going to Yale was that, you know, you can find ways to carry on this pursuit without like a formal structure in place you just need to you know find the right people to support you and find an area that you want to throw yourself into and you can find ways to do it and I think all of us are doing that right now which I'm very like happy to hear so like even though like technically all my like formal pursuits outside of medicine are technically done like there's still ways for me to go about like exploring them and diving deeper into them um, in my own time but it really has paid off and I'm very happy and very fulfilled. Honestly, why I decided to take this gap year was because I first received the email about the program in my NUS email. And then I was like, this sounds really cool. <laughs> and then I think it was like a combination of like me always wanting to explore what life is like living overseas by myself. And also like being interested in things beyond medicine. So like, I think those two things just like, convince me and push me to like take it to the final step and apply. Could you guys reflect a bit more about like what you guys did in M1 and M2? Because I feel like when I first thought about this, uh, why this program, like, I was super intimidated because um, it's like only five people in the entire NUS get to go and I was, and I definitely was not an elite student in any way. I was super average um, and I didn't do a lot of activities outside of medicine. So I think this could be helpful for people in future gap years. So I was mostly focused in M1 and M2. I was focused on my overseas uh, community involvement project, which is Project Lokun. I spent a lot of time working on Lokun and uh, I, right now I'm still, I'm, I'm going to have a chat with the current hits uh, about the project. Because I recently, it's still very much on my mind, even though I've stepped down 
for over a year. <laughs> but it's still very much on my mind and I care a lot about it. And I want to make sure that what we're doing is good, meaningful work. So I recently spoke to my social entrepreneurship professor about that project. I'm going to share what I learned with my, with my current juniors. Or current batchmates. Oh my gosh, they're my batch now. I'm in their batch now. So yeah, that was what I was doing in year one, year two, Lokun. The most rewarding part of which was working with our partner university in Cambodia. What else did I do? I was in USP. Over there, I was, I played dodgeball. Really sucked at it, but I played dodgeball. Um, I was also in NUS mountaineering, <laughs> which I also really sucked at, but I still did it anyway. I'm not the most athletic person out there, but I definitely tried. Yeah, that was what I did at M1M2. I, I guess with regards to like feeling qualified to apply for YVIS, it was definitely very intimidating as well because like even though I was doing things outside of class, because I was doing all these things outside of class, my grades were not swell, <laughs> especially in medicine. Like I know it's a pass-fail thing, but I had this secret feeling that like they would pull out my actual grades and not be impressed. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely wasn't on top of the medical knowledge. I definitely struggled a lot in year one and year two with regards to preclinical content because it was very content heavy. And that made me worry about taking a year off from school and having a gap in my knowledge before I went back into clinical years. But I think it just meant that I would have to work harder in year three to five, which is fine. I was willing to make that sort of sacrifice. But I felt like it was, the exchange was worth it, yeah. That feels like really long ago, but I think when I came into M1, everyone was talking a lot about like different projects. I think the one that resonated with me the most was NHS because um, I used to volunteer at NPS and I feel like the rental block population and also like even beyond the rental block population, like the sandwich class, the middle class are also like people that perhaps have higher barriers to healthcare. That was why it, the NHS course really resonated with me and that's how I ended up being part of NHS for like the next two years. And I think one of the most like rewarding things for me is just seeing like how much effort the whole team puts into it and how much thought that everyone puts into it so like there was many weekends that it was health screenings back to back with pre-publicity and follow-up and everyone showed up for like every single event even if it's like early in the morning at 6 a.m and they're not like getting paid they're not getting like anything out of it it's just that they want to serve and i think that that was really rewarding like seeing everyone from my batchmates and friends just come together and help so i think that took up a lot of time in them too definitely the second thing i did comes the directorate caitlin too so we organized some events, tried new things. I think one of the interesting things that we tried was um, ComServe Leaders Night, where we invited like doctors and also like Jin Hao, who is the past ComServe director, to like sort of talk about their experience, like their leadership experience, and like how do they like deal with some of the challenges that they face. And I think like it was very inspirational because like all the people who talked told their own story about how they overcame difficulties both in their personal and professional life to do the things that they do, and that was something interesting that they ComServe. When I was in M1 and M2, I, I did not do as many things as Caitlin or Yiling. I think the main thing which I really did was uh, do this thing called the Medicine and Literature Interest Group where I just got like, like-minded uh, students and doctors who enjoyed reading books um, and thought they were valuable for medical education to just like, come and talk about their favourite books. And uh, possibly the reason why I did that was I think that there are a lot of very well-established things in med school. But I felt like um, I wanted to like I think like similar to this podcast, I think that I wanted to create space for things which were not as well established in medicine. 
sometimes like as medical students, we tend to do things with like a very clear end result so that we can report certain KPIs to like donors or get the school's approval to put like our picture on web. And then I think like my year at year has only reinforced this, which is that a lot of things which are worth doing might not yield immediate results and might not look good on our, on our website. And uh, so that's why I wanted to do MedLit. So I guess like the last question I have is, um, I mean, I get a lot of like, people who text me off the blue and they ask me so Anhui can I ask you some questions about your gap year I think like I think behind that question there's a lot of like worry and anxiety because we're not used to doing something which is different from the path which we are meant to follow or follow the path which has already created so um, now that we have the only three people from Yomale who would ever go to Yale for a year we could like just uh, give like some words of advice for people who are considering a gap year I learned something very useful from a friend and I usually applied this when it came to relationships but I feel like it's very applicable um, with regards to gap year decisions and that is to not make decisions out of fear. That's right. Um, so I think there's definitely concern about like, you know, will I fall behind? Will I miss out? Um, you know, there's definitely something different, you know, coming in saying that, oh, I'm from the class of 2022 and thinking that you're going to graduate with these people. And then, haha, guess what? You're not. <laughs> and then you don't, like when they're all at commencement, you're not there. So there is that, definitely that sense of like, that you made, no, I wouldn't call it made a mistake, but like that you're left out from something that you thought you would be a part of. But if you look at the bigger picture, you know, you're still going to go for commencement. You're still going to go into the wards. You're still going to do all these things. You're just going to do them one year later. And in exchange for doing them one year later, you get a whole year worth of experience that you otherwise wouldn't have. If you're hesitant about taking a gap year, I think the very fact that you're considering a gap year is reason enough to go. I think one thing that I wish I knew before going was like, even after I got the outcome that I was able to go, like something that I stressed out a lot about when I went was, you know, having it all figured out. But a lot of things only fell into place in the later half of my first semester or the second semester even. So things like theatre, you know, I thought like I was rejected from a lot of auditions at the start, but eventually I did four productions. So it's like, you know, things take time to work out or like research also like I tried emailing so many random people asking if I could do research with them and they were all like no <laughs> or like I even had one project that failed because someone had done it before and we didn't know so it's like you know all these barriers existed and I thought I was like like things weren't gonna work out but things take time and you don't have to have the whole gap year like planned out from start to finish before you even take it just go there and do your best and take whatever opportunity that comes like if something appeals to you just go for it lah. like even if it turns out to be oh well you don't lose much. You lose a bit of time, but you can always find time. So I feel like that was something that I wish I had known before that. Instead of like stressing so much about things not working out initially, because they'll work out eventually. Even like you take away something from just being in a different country or just being on your own. Like I picked up art when I was overseas and it has been amazing for my creative expression and mental health. And I, I really appreciate the role that has come to play in my life and I don't think I would have made that realisation if I hadn't been away and had the space to explore all of this. Yeah. Yeah, I love what you said about not letting fear sort of decide your decision because I feel like, yeah, at some points in my, in my like decision to go to, to you, there was definitely points in time where I was like, what have I done? I think one of that strongest feeling was like when I was at the airport and I was saying goodbye to all like my loved ones I was just crying all the way from like Singapore to New to like JFK Airport and like the whole time I was thinking like what have I done? And I guess like it wasn't until a few weeks later into my experience where I realized that it was a good decision and that it was rash on me to say like, oh that I will never do this again. 
And I think that it's always scariest at the beginning because you don't know what to expect. So like having that in mind and like going in with that mindset can help sort of mitigate some of the fears. And I think the second thing was uh, advice that again, Dean Edwards told me about making decisions. So like I sort of like asked a lot about advice about how to like make decisions, like big decisions in life. And I guess I get you as well then. And the advice she gave me was think of like what you want to do and like list out your pros and cons. From there, you weigh which one is better. But then after that, you have to like look into your heart and see like which one does your heart want to go to. So like, even if the pros and cons of something point you to direction A, maybe your heart is telling you point direction B. And like at the end of the day, like what is going to make you happier is probably going with what emotionally you are wanting, even though that might not be this quote-unquote most logical choice. And when you do a like cost and benefit analysis of things, sometimes you miss out things in life. And I feel like what she taught me really like got me thinking about like how do you make decisions that is ultimately like what is best for you or like what would make you a more like well-rounded or happier person. So like, that advice really helped me a lot. And I guess the third thing, a quote that a good friend of mine really like is the eye doesn't see what the mind doesn't know. So if you don't know what people have been doing for a gap year, it's hard to envision what your gap year would be like. Hearing about everyone's stories, like how Anhui here is collating her stories, or like asking people who have taken gap years before can give you a better idea of like what to expect. So it doesn't just seem like this void of infinite possibilities and things that can go wrong. So that are my like hopefully helpful advice. Just gonna jump on the quotation bandwagon. You know, like in secondary school, they really do the thing called outward bounds. And then like I remember there's this quote. I I have a terrible memory, but something about if the ship doesn't like leave the harbor, then it's um how do you know it can test it can um you don't go off your comfort zone, how do you know you can be strong? Even when I was like deciding whether to do medicine or not. I remember like reading somewhere that said you should always choose the path which is more difficult because it makes you stronger at the end of the day. And so I should think that there is nothing for a medical student in Singapore to fear at all because your safety net is crazy strong. The Ministry of Health has invested $600,000 in you. They will wait for you. But you know, in moments of fear, like, I think like what Caitlin say, you just have to keep marching forward. Um, if you paralyze you, uh, if not, you're just going to be leading a life which is not fulfilled. And um, yeah, I was thinking about what Caitlin said also, like, you know, whether like all your friends are going to be at commencement without you. And I was like spring cleaning because that's what everyone does when you're in circuit breaker. And uh, I found the band, the white coat that they give you on white coat ceremony. And mine still said year of 2021. And then at that moment, I was like, okay, I'm not actually going to graduate year of 2021. And then Mimi said, but I think like weighing the costs and benefits in a Singaporean quantitative sense, um, it definitely gave me more than I could ever give. Lah. Now that I'm back in my clinical years, I think it might be a bit useful to talk about how my experience in the clinical years have been. Because that's some of the questions which a lot of people have been asking me about. So on an academic point of view, I have received the same grades for all my postings as my CGBs. So I really don't think that on an academic point of view, you're going to be worse off. You'd be surprised. I think the amount of things you forget in that two-month or one-month holiday after M2 is almost the same as one year. Uh, socially, I think that I've been very, very lucky though, because I think I have a, a very, very nice and supportive bunch of CG mates who uh, put up with a lot of my quirks, especially when like FedMed was our first posting and I was like still super emo that. And this actually acts as a some nice closure to just think back about what has happened. And like Caitlin, I'm happy to take anyone's questions or like 
if you want to hear more stories about crazy stuff that happened at Yale, you know where to find me. It's also beneficial for you guys to find out like who else is interested in taking a gap year so that you guys can support one another on this very initially scary but extremely rewarding journey. Just want to give a shout out to Erica Niam, the composer of our wonderful music. This piece called Locked In, which was first performed at the Sing Health Humanizing Healthcare concert in December of 2019. If you enjoyed our podcast, please follow us on Instagram at thirdspacing and check out our website, thirdspacing.wordpress.com.